Hello, and welcome back to Put Them on the Couch. I'd like to welcome you guys as we rejoin a very special guest today in the studio, Mr. Bob Brennan. Twice in two weeks, he's going to talk about his harrowing life story. Those unfamiliar with Bob are sure to be captivated today. Those who know Bob will recall that he has been through hell and back, especially the last six years of his life as he recovered from a double lung transplant. But just last week, Bob made a very impromptu guest appearance on Put Him on the Couch, where he shared a new health-related challenge. Today, we pick up where Bob left off, exploring Bob's life, humor, and ever-evolving relationship with the unknown. Why, thank you for that wonderful intro. You're very welcome, Bob. Makes me sound special. <laughs> Bob, today you wanted to come in and talk about fear. Yes, I do. And that's why we uh, chose this particular op- opening clip. And I'm sure most of the audience is familiar with this song. Oh, yeah. And for most of the audience, it's easy not to fear the Reaper, right? Well, yeah, unless he's staring in the face, in which case you can't ignore him. I mean, you know what they say, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Okay. uh, Welcome back, Bob. I'm trying to remember what we talked about last time, but... Well, um, to set the stage, well, again in the studio, Mr. Bob Brennan, six-year survivor, pretty close. This uh, January 1st, coming back around, will be six years. Yeah. Double yeah. lung transplant at Duke University. He spent about an hour and 30 minutes talking about his life story, focusing a great deal on his journey, specifically the trepidation uh, as he approached this life-saving double lung transplant six years ago. And now, last week you shared with us that you have some new health health, health health-related consequences, yeah. health-related problems. Uh, you said that your liver was failing and that you, well, the way you described it, it was like leaky plumbing and uh, it was back filling into your Abdominal cavity. Abdominal cavity, yeah, the, the sac that holds all the organs. And you described it as pretty painful and feeling like a child sitting on you. And So you'd been going in once a week or once every two weeks to get this stuff, uh, as you called it, meta-wet-vacked, removed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when, when's the last time you had to go in? I went this past uh, Thursday, the 19th. Oh, wow. That's the thing that scares me is uh, that the first time I went was the 27th and they took out maybe two and a half liters of fluid. Right. And then I went back on the 10th and they took out three liters of fluid. And then I went back on the 19th and they took out three and a half liters. So uh, it's happening faster and faster. So that's uh, kind of scary. I mean, what happens? Am I just going to end up permanently hooked up? Yeah, to a to a drain. Now, one of the things I enjoyed about doing our original broadcast on the, the 
double lung transplant, that, a lot of that was about being informative. Um, yeah. This particular time around, you know, I, I broached this idea to you. I wanted to do this broadcast in real time. That's so right. what's happening is, as I learn information, I'm going to come in here with you and we're going to talk about what's happening next. Sure. Um, I think the last time I had a certain amount of distance because it had happened in the past. So it, it didn't carry that same immediacy. Um, I remember one of the people that commented on the previous podcast said something about, you know, she was interested in what, what was it like waiting for it? For a transplant. Yeah, in the and, moment. And that's where I am right now. I, tomorrow, I go up on the 23rd, and I'm going to meet with a transplant team. I'm going to meet with the liver doctors, and we're going to try and sketch out some kind of plan, some kind of attack plan, what's going to happen. Uh, if necessary, we'll start talking about the idea of a transplant. Yeah. Um, but I have no idea what the requirements are going to be. I have no idea whether my body... Will be because when we did the lung transplant, they ran my whole body through a series of tests, like my heart, um, you know, everything to see if I would collapse with the pressure of a transplant. So I've got to go through all that again. And again, these are all unknowns right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. And and, and remind the audience, you also had to do some physical testing, some PT, as it were. For your lungs, you had to prove that you were physically strong enough as well? Oh, yeah. We had to go through. There was an entire program that they put mm -hmm. you through to prepare you to start exercising. Now, I, I did You don't know the extent of this this time around. If you if you did qualify, would it, would it require you to go through some kind of Well, I, I'm guessing it testing. would be different because your lungs are such an active part. You know, you have to breathe. You have to do cardio. You have to climb steps or get on the treadmill or ride a bike and you know where I, I feel like the liver is more of a relaxed kind of organ where it just happens at its own pace so I don't think it's going to be quite as disruptive and, and I've spoken with several people who've had one and they said it's it's not as brutal as the lung transplant so that's that's good yeah that's good the other thing I have to worry about is uh, getting a blood type match. Yeah, talk so, about that. Yeah, we need to, I need to find somebody that's going to match me. So I already tried my brother, but that bastard's got to be positive. And that's I, not... I, I think that's what I've got. I can check, though. Yeah, so <laughs> when it comes to a liver transplant, the person, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't have to be deceased in order to to give you no, part you of their can, liver. Yeah, you, the unique thing about the, the liver is that it can regenerate itself to a certain extent. Oh, wow. So they've done stuff where they've transported, you know, transplanted portions of a liver. Right. So I don't know. Again, I, I don't know enough about right. it. I'm hoping to but get there, some serious answers. It's possible tomorrow. that somebody in our audience listening could be a match. They could donate part of a liver. Not that you're asking, but. We have been doing this um, for quite a while now, and I know part of the reason you wanted to do this, at least initially, was to point out how important um, organ donation is. So one of the reasons that we were doing this program was to raise awareness on organ donation in the United States. And I don't know if you know this, but something like 42,000 Organ transplants are done every year in the United States. Wow. That's a lot. 
It is. It is. So it's it's a lot more common than you might think. Right. In fact, where I work, I think there's two other uh, faculty members who have either they or their spouses have had some kind of organ transplant. Yeah, I think I remember you saying something in the first episode about that. Yeah. So, um, and you know, one of the things I wanted to to bring up and dispel right now is, you know, one of the biggest fears is that you're going to get in a car accident and then they're going to be like, oh, look. You're Jason. not as important as the person who needs this no, organ. Jason McCoy is an organ donor, and we uh-huh. can get a couple of mil off this bad boy. Right, right, right. And they're going to be like, oopsie. you know." He drop. didn't make it, yeah. Right, but that is, in fact, the antithesis of what medical personnel do. Yeah. That's that whole Hippocratic oath. Yeah. You know, first, do no harm. Right. Yeah, try they're, to save the person if they right. absolutely can. The human yeah, I'm sure they don't even know you're an organ donor, right? I mean, when the EMTs show oh, up, it's no. not like they're rummaging through your wallet to find out if you're an organ donor. Maybe if you had it tattooed on your forehead. Right, and but... also, at the same time, how would the EMT know who needs one, right? It's not like, you know, the EMT knows what the list looks like. No, no. So, again, you know, that's I, I want to dispel that myth because that's not what happens. Yeah, well, people will believe anything and everything about pretty much nothing. I mean... Conspiracy theories don't start or stop with organ donation, as you know. No, no. But I am glad we're doing this. I'm glad we're bringing attention to the fact that this is has become relatively routine throughout America. I right? mean, forty-two thousand. I mean, yeah, that's. I think um, that's a as, lot. As I look it up here, it says uh, that for the first time ever, organ transplants. Excuse me, for the first time ever, kidney transplants exceeded twenty-five thousand uh, last year. Annual records were also set last year for liver, heart, and lung transplants. How about that? And that's just across the United States of America. Yeah, and other countries are doing the same thing. So it's not, you know, Dr. Frankenstein kind of thing where we're chopping people apart and slapping together again. It's, right. it's like I said, it's a very uh, technical thing. And, and Although if and when you get another organ, you will be closer to Dr. Frankenstein's monster than you were. Well. I mean, you you will be... I still have my brain, so... Piecemealed part by part. Um, yeah, that raises an interesting question. So if you if you found out, you know, today or tomorrow that in addition to your kidneys, there was something wrong with your brain and they need to cut some of it out and they had this experimental, you know, process where they could add someone else's brain back in there. Well, uh, then, then uh, you're I, not I you. know, I know, well, yeah, you'd be partly me, which I know that's probably what you'd want. And I guess I'd be willing to give you a little bit of this brain. But... If you couldn't get my brain, whose would you want, living or otherwise? Living or otherwise. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. A, <laughs> I mean, you know, Stephen Hawking or yeah, Albert yeah. Einstein definitely comes to mind. So would Julius Caesar. Yeah. You know, you want well, do, By the way, do you think about Rome at least once a day like most men do, according to these new TikTok videos? Well, I mean, that's my favorite period to cover. And I am a history instructor, yeah. so I think that makes... A little bit more excusable. Right. You don't think about Rome just because you you um, are nostalgic for the days of like no, the, bl- no. the bloody gladiator events and. I mean, and, I have a tattoo of my dog, and his name was Caesar. So, sure. You know. Yeah. So we know you uh, have certain ways of paying homage to uh, the Roman Empire, but I'm an aficionado of. Is Rome. there is there a specific Roman you would you said Julius Caesar? Oh yeah, Julius Caesar by right? far. Right. But he died. Well, everybody dies. Yeah. But not Marcus Aurelius or not, um, what's the guy's name, who uh, Brutus or Cassius in Shakespeare's play? 
No, they were jealous of yeah, Caesar. I see. Yeah. That's Caesar. Caesar. Alexander the Great, maybe? That's Ronnie's favorite. Oh, yeah. You Ronnie Kirkland. take Ronnie Kirkland's favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Another history professor, by the way, who's now long since retired and enjoying, um, it looks like his backyard full of animals and flowers. Guests. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you said you, uh, you know, when Bob called me up a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, I want to do some more of these podcast episodes to kind of <clears throat> let people know how I'm doing, but also to give them sort of some real time, um, a real time authentic response from me, right? They would know exactly as much as I know at every point. I said, yeah, that sounds good, man. I don't want to exploit you. I don't want you to come in and do something like this just because you know you're popular and you give me a lot of clicks. And he said, well, that's, that's okay too. But really what I'm wanting to do is continue to draw attention to the importance of organ donation, mm -hmm. try to dispel some myths surrounding organ donation. And then, yeah, just share my story. So in the event that someone else hears this, that is themselves going through something like me or, or knows someone who's going through something like this, this, um, they won't be alone and maybe they'll, hearing from someone who is experiencing it in real time, maybe that will benefit them in some way, in a way that, you know, talking about in the past tense just couldn't. And um, so we did it. You guys have already started listening to that episode. I dropped it about 24 hours ago. It already has the third most listeners of any of my podcasts, by the way, um, well over 100 listeners already. At any rate, um, he said, well, you know what? I want to do another one. And I was like, man, we just did one a week ago. I just dropped it. And he goes, yeah, but I want to talk about sort of the next thing. And I was like, well, what's the next thing? And uh, why don't you tell him what you said? You want to do one on, on what? On the fear? On the fear, fear. yeah. Um, Which hence is why he, he selected the uh, Blue Oyster Cult's um, famous well, cowboy bell tune, Fear <laughs> the Reaper. Mark Cowbell. What do you mean by fear? I mean, you, you believe in an afterlife, right? Um, I'm actually worried about the current life more ah, than I am the afterlife. So um, your your fears are grounded right here in, in the here and now. Well, first of all, you know, I'm afraid. But I, I, again, I, I would argue that fear is normal. It's natural. Okay. If, if you're in this situation where your life is hanging on, you know, random luck, decisions, stuff like that, that other people make... Of course it's terrifying because yeah. you are literally giving up control and waiting. It's not like... On the verdict. Oh, I can get myself up and go to the store. It's, it's like I'm waiting for someone to deliver the good news. Or bad news. Or bad news, yeah. Wow, um, in that way it sounds like capital murder or punishment, right? You're sitting in the... Waiting the, for the governor's call. Or waiting for the, the jury to deliberate and, and give you your sentence. Do you live or die? Um. So I think it's normal to be afraid. And that's one of the things I wanted anybody that might be going through this, you know, if they say, you know, I'm scared, but, I, you know, it's totally normal, dude. Right. You can be afraid. Um, I'm not saying it has to paralyze you, but I'm saying if you experience fear, that's normal. That's your body telling you, hey, something's wrong here. Yeah. Hey, I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, if I weren't afraid, something might be wrong with me. Right. If, if you can't process the fact that this is a dangerous moment in your life, then you're not paying but attention. I mean, but I mean, you're a red-blooded American. You're a man. Grew up in the hard streets of uh, New Jersey in the 60s. There's got to be a little trepidation about letting people, particularly people you don't even know, hear 
fear in your voice, right? Well, I do, mean, do you worry that that's going to change people's um, attitudes about Mr. Rough and Tumble? I can handle anything, oh, Bob Brennan. Um, the irony is, um, from the feedback I've gotten from people, yeah. they told me I was brave and courageous to talk about this. That's a good point. That I don't need to maintain that artificiality of I'm not scared. Hard outer shell. Right. That I can say, hey, listen, this is normal. I'm scared. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm afraid, you know, I don't want to die. Yeah. You know, that's normal. And that, that was one of the things I wanted. So for people that might go through this or they might have loved ones that are going through this, you know, fear is normal. Yeah. Fear is totally normal. So do not feel bad. Do not get worried. Do not don't feel, feel like you've got to walk around on eggshells to avoid the, the, the discussion about the fear and the unknown. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, it's your life. It's your situation. Talk about it. Yeah. And if you can't find somebody that wants to talk to you about it, go look. You yeah. know, there's plenty of therapy out there. There's plenty of psychologists. There's um, licensed clinical social workers, people that can help you deal with this situation. So mm -hmm. there's, there's always somebody out there. So if you're really suffering, reach out. It doesn't mean you're weak. And, you know, I grew up in the days when, you know, if you sought out, you know, mental health professionals, then you're, you're, weak. you're weak. Yeah. You had to maintain that stiff upper lip and that hard outer shell at right. all costs. Right, but nowadays I think there's it's a not as not quite as much of a stigma. But well, if staring down the barrel of death like you have been doing your entire life doesn't make that blatantly obvious, I don't know what does. I mean, it's it's one thing to feel like, all right, I don't want to let people know I have, you know, a headache or that my mood is depressed today. But it's quite another to feel like, you know what, I can't express my fear and apprehension and foreboding of, you know, what what seems like inevitable death. I mean, anytime you are in organ failure, I assume you're not going to be able to help but to think about death, Yeah. you know, all the time. What do you do to get your mind off of it, by the way? There's, uh, first of all, I'm still teaching. That's right. Yep. Still um, teaching a full load of classes. Yep. So still full time. So when I'm in the classroom and I'm talking about Napoleon or I'm talking about the fall of the Roman Republic or I get so wound up in the topic that for a brief, you know, period of time, I forget my situation and I lose myself mm. in the lesson. Yeah. And it's kind of nice because it's like a little mini vacation for my brain and my anxiety. That's an interesting way of describing it. Mini vacation. And then uh, same with my dog. If I'm playing with my dog and I'm throwing the ball and he's stepping on my foot with his 100-pound paws, you know, it's like, ow! Yeah. Um, you know, stuff like that that makes me happy, you know. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, one of our uh, last podcast recordings, uh, Nelson and I did just a couple of days ago that will be released in the near future, um, we looked at pain. And in particular, we were asking questions like, why would anybody purposely put themselves into uh, the kinds of physical pain that, say, a sadist does or that, say, someone who is trying to break some kind of, um, you know, extreme record for holding their breath or eating, eating extremely hot peppers. This guy in South Carolina just dropped a new pepper that's apparently the hottest in the world again. He's the guy, um, last name's Curry, Ed Curry, who... Developed oh, I the, the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. He developed the um, Reaper, the Carolina Reaper. And now he's got a new one they call Pepper X. He said when he took a bite of it, 
I mean, this is the guy who invented the world's hottest pepper. Right. Now he's got the second hottest pepper on the earth. He said, when I took a bite of it, I uh, was on my marble floor in my house, writhing in abdominal pain for an hour. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it struck me when you said, you know, the pain of your dog stepping on you and, yeah. you and you kind of grin for those obviously that are not in the studio, which is everyone but me, they couldn't see that little childhood grin on your face, that little adolescent grin when you described playing with your dog. What was that about? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because again, this ties into everything we just talked about. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was under the impression that only girls use Novocaine when mm. they got cavities drilled out. Yeah. And because of the special diet I was on, uh, it was not unheard of for me to have eight to 10 cavities every six months. Right. Because the medicine I had chewed right through the enamel. So I would get, I'm 10 years old yeah. and I'm, I'm in the dentist's office and they're drilling my teeth out like the marathon man. <laughs> and um, they're begging me to take something. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and they would just drill it down to that big third drill. Like, because yeah. only girls and 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 wimps right. used uh, medicine to uh, prevent them from feeling pain, huh? Right. So yeah. I believed it for a long time. Right. So that was me deliberately subjecting myself to pain, yeah. because I thought that's what you're supposed to. Well, do. and what's interesting is again, people deliberately subject themselves to all sorts of pain, both physical and emotional, um, in the name of pain relief, which is kind of weird, right? Like, so, you know, oh. I might, I might exercise myself until I am in incredible pain, but I go back and do it again. And, and somehow that sort of provides a, an analgesic bomb for maybe some other type of pain I'm experiencing. Is it, is it, do you think just the distraction or do you think maybe there's something more deep, deeper than that, more spiritual? Or I don't know. Like, you know, when you're playing with your dog and he's chewing on you and, He's basically manhandling you because for those that don't know, Bob always has some very large, strong, um, low center of gravity dogs with big mitts and big, big mouths. <laughs> um, but again, you described him as stepping on you as if that was hurting, that was painful, but you were smiling like, hey, you know, I can escape this other pain to be in this pain I want to be in. Well, I, Tattooing I, is another example, I think, you know. Anyone who's ever gotten a tattoo knows that it's painful on the surface. Right. But people find that, I mean, almost. find it addictive. Yeah, almost yeah. addictive. It's almost so pleasurable it becomes addictive. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, growing up where I grew up, there's plenty of pain to be had. And um, I came to a realization one day that pain without fear mm. Barely hurts at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Like yeah. the, the first time I had a kidney stone, I had no idea what it was. Right, the uncertainty, the unknown. And it hurt. It hurt I like thought it. like my bowel had exploded or mm -hmm. my spleen had exploded or, yeah. you know, in the emergency room. And I'm like, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now the other day when I was getting the liquid drained out, the three, three yeah. and a half liters, Just, I, I passed the kidney stone while I was there. It was oh, like, my God. Incidentally passed the yeah, kidney stone. It was like it, it wasn't even worth mentioning. And then they pull the medevac out of your side and just probably stick a Band-Aid on it and tell you, all yeah. right, see you next time. I still got the, the Band-Aid. Oh, my God, oh. yeah. I'm looking at it. He's got a couple of uh, places on his body where they've obviously poked him. Yeah. I get the Band-Aid on it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But... um. So yeah, the but, other. But, but what about people who say, "Well, well, Bob, I mean, you're 60 years old. You've lived a 
uh, a long life, you've had a lot of adversity. Mm -hmm. Um, of course it's going to be easier for you to tolerate these kinds of things. I mean, getting a tube stuck in your side is not the same as a 10 year old kid getting a tube stuck in his side. What do you say to people that say, um, but I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm fearful that all these things are going to hurt. Um, they and, do. They don't, and they don't have a lot of experience. <laughs> they do. <laughs> you hurt. want them to know, okay, yes, it does. <laughs> they do. But but if it's for a greater good, yeah. you know, it's not like you said, hey, y'all, watch this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of a firecracker in your hand. So would you say it's important to learn as much as you can about these procedures, talk as much as you can oh, yes, with others? That, yeah. Go talk, ahead to talk, the, to that. talk to the doctors. Mm -hmm. because say, Let so, them know you're afraid. What? Or also say, so what are we doing? You I know, got you. and and I think being forewarned with information, like mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. Yeah, they bring out the needle and you say instantly, where are you going to put that? Right, and then they say, well, we're going to puncture it into your side, mm -hmm. and then we're going to hook it up to a machine that will pull the fluid out. I got you. And I think, see, now all of a sudden, it's it's not that huge mystery, right? Because you have some expectations about what are going to happen. What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. You know, because. It's like a wet vac. It's like I joke around. So you've seen a wet vac at work. You, know, yeah. you plug it in, zzz, you suck up the fluid. Yeah. And it might look really uh, scary before you've ever used it, but once you turn it on and start sucking things up, you realize, oh, this is kind of fun. And it's way quieter than a real wet vac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the one you use. Yeah, they just kind of stuck it in. And then it was, I ended up chatting with the, the nurse about my dogs for 20 minutes. While now, I was how long you said it was about three and a half liters they took off? Yeah which I'm assuming is like 10 pounds of body weight or more. Uh, it was probably about seven. Okay. And that's the same thing they did the first time or two they took it off of you. Yeah, each time. Um, how long does it take to get that stuff off of you again? Not long, 20, 30 minutes max. Oh, wow, that's faster than a blood donation. Yeah. And um, Now, do you get the juice while it's happening or no? No, they just tell you to make sure you drink a lot of liquids mm -hmm. later on. Yeah. Um, the only thing is they make you, because it's outpatient surgery, mm -hmm. they make sure that you lay there for an hour, you know, to make sure you recover at equilibrium before you get up and try and drive out of the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So that's the, actually the longest part is waiting to make sure that you're fine afterwards. Now, what about the uh, copay? Do you have a copay every time you go in or have you kind of met, met your deductible and? Well, you that's the good part about being sick all the yeah, time. Yeah, you said before that the deductibles met pretty much early in the year. <laughs> I met all my deductibles and co-pays in April. Wow. Okay. So everything's free until January 1st yeah. again. And then it comes back around. I mean, I know we've not really talked about the pain of the finances, but mm. I know for some of our listeners out there, they're probably curious, like, you know, what's that like? I mean, you, you've said many times you're a teacher. And yeah. even though you've been doing it for probably 30 years, um, it's not like you're wealthy. And, um, you know, for listeners who don't know, when Bob was preparing himself and trying to, let's face it, qualify for these lungs six years ago, Duke University, as, as philanthropic and as great as they were, um, they still needed to see, you know, a certain amount of money. What was it, $40,000 um, to... In my bank in account. In his bank account. I mean, he couldn't say, yeah, I'm good for it. Uh, they didn't want that as a copay or anything like that. They wanted to make sure that he was going to be able to support himself independently. During recovery. During recovery. They want to make sure that he could get an apartment or something close to Duke University. Yep. They weren't going to let him come back down to Wilmington and then something happened. Uh, happened. So they wanted him to be close yep. to Duke. So I lived a couple months in Durham with my brother. 
So, you know, admittedly, he didn't know what he was going to do. I guess he would have, yeah, second mortgage on his house or probably sold his house at the time, his car. He would have pretty much mortgaged everything but his his animals. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, again, my co-host Nelson Bowyer <clears throat> immediately went to work and started a GoFundMe. I don't even think Bob knew that he was doing it until... He, he's a, He was amazing. Yeah. I, I can't give him enough thank yous. Well, and so, you know, I'm not going to embarrass you or talk about it too much on these these episodes but you know nelson is planning something there's a there's a planning stage going on right now and as soon as he gets confirmation from me or someone else that he respects he's probably going to go ahead and start moving forward with this um so in the coming weeks you know you you may be asked bob for some account information or or something like that so we can we can start hooking you up Again, we don't know. Yeah. Bob doesn't know. He he doesn't know what, if, or when he's going to need anything. Well, that's know? what that's the reason and, we're and doing. And that is not today. the reason we're here um, to solicit money or anything like that from the audience. Again, this is purely informative, and um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I, I made that clear, though. Well, there's other organizations that that accept donations. donations. Yeah. To help other patients. So even if you don't like me, there you could, are other yeah, people you that donate. you could donate it to. Mm -hmm. So I mean something as simple as the Red Cross for blood, right? I mean yep. that's a that's always a good one. Yeah, if you're moved, if you're so moved by hearing Bob's story and you feel, you know, helpless, but you don't necessarily want to donate to him, yeah, you can always just uh drop some kind of donation off to your local blood bank. I mean, better yet, Bob would probably be the first to say this. Um, go and donate blood. Um, consider signing up to be an organ donor. Yeah. Um, that would be just as, if not more important than helping save Bob's life directly. Um, and like we said, each person that signs up to be an organ donor, they can save up to six lives. That's amazing. Six that's lives. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that tells you how many vital organs we have, you know, and yep. any one of them is a requisite for a, a normal, long, healthy life. And Bob has managed to live... A long life, relatively, not necessarily normal and not necessarily healthy, but again, not really through any fault of his own. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, I'm sitting with Bob Brennan, a lifelong victim, let's, let's, let's say it what it is, of cystic fibrosis, a disease that he was born with. Uh, he did not let this stop him. He did not let this get him down. Uh, despite having this disease, he he persevered, and he talks about this at length in our first episode, uh, what it was like and how in many ways the disease motivated him to become the man he is today. And yet, and yet, uh, this disease, despite him working very hard his entire life, lifting weights, staying on a relatively cross good diet, running cross-country in high school, uh, not doing drugs and, and drinking throughout his adult life, not, you know, just just really doing everything he could do to uh, be a good steward of the body uh, he was dealt with. And yet his lungs finally succumbed about six years ago this this December. Yep. And uh, now he's in for, I guess, another pound of flesh potentially. <laughs> he's found out that his kidneys are Liver. Sorry. He's found out that his his kidneys are in failure. Liver. He's found out that his liver is not 
he's found out that he is in liver failure. Yes. Part of it is from cystic fibrosis, so that's the gift that keeps on giving. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good point, really quickly. You know, people have asked me, I'm not sure if they asked you, when Bob gets this lung transplant, my understanding is that cystic fibrosis affects the lungs. It's in the lungs. It, it keeps you from being able to, to, to clear the lungs, to cough up, you know, whatever's in the lungs because it's so heavy and dense with this mucus. So if he gets these new lungs, he'll be essentially cured of cystic fibrosis. Why don't you... uh? Allay that myth. Okay, so cystic fibrosis doesn't just affect the lungs. Mm -hmm. It affects your pancreas. It affects a couple other organs as well. Uh, makes you more likely to be a diabetic. So it's an equal um, opportunity bully. Oh, yeah. It just attacks everything. Um, I have an enlarged heart because of it, mm -hmm. because I've had to struggle so hard to push blood through fast enough that my uh, lungs... Is that, is that what was going on with the Grinch then? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They don't mention it because they don't want to scare the no, kids. No, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, <clears throat> so basically all they did was with the, with the lung transplant, they turned the clock back to zero. Yeah. And now my lungs are going to continue to get worse. But ah. the thing is, if I made it 54 years the first time around. Yeah, 108 wouldn't be a bad life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to live to be 108. <laughs> No. I'm too old now as it is. Jeez. So the other organs obviously have been chugging along ever since, you know, you were born. But they also got damaged, too, because one of the things, the irony is, like, when, when people hear that you have trouble with your lungs, they're assuming you can't get enough oxygen, which is true. Mm -hmm. But what was hurting me the most is I couldn't expel the carbon dioxide. Ah, yeah. So but, they weren't, there, there wasn't enough oxygen. There wasn't enough oxygen, but there also wasn't enough air power to push the CO2 out. I see. So what happens, it, it starts getting stored in your body. So my liver took a hit. My kidneys took a hit. My heart took a hit. Mm -hmm. Everything took a hit because I'm storing up CO2, which is, as you know, not good. No. And um, But as soon as I got the new lungs, not only was I getting oxygen in, but then the CO2 was leaving my mm -hmm. body. My brother said, because he was there, right. you know, he saw me disappear into the operating room. So keep in mind, they had me open for like, I don't know, eight hours, hacked to pieces, right. and sewed back together. He said, I look so much better after being cut in half and having these things put in than I did before the operation. Amazing. Like I had color in my cheeks, yeah. you know, my face had gone back to the normal flush and just... Yeah, because, talk about a reset. Yeah, and he said if it wasn't for the fact that he had all these wires and tubes sticking out of you, he's like, you look like you could have got up and walked right out. Wow. And so, yeah, the, the other organs are just kind of continuing on their course, which means that they've been getting the double whammy, right? They got the, they got the deleterious effects of, um, or the ill effects, I should say, of cystic fibrosis, but also talk again about the medicines that you've been on since the double lung transplant and, and to the extent to which they have actually compromised some of your organs, including your liver. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they do tell you up front when, you know, I was in line to get the lung transplant that the anti-rejection drugs, mm -hmm. because everybody's immune system is unique. Well, they also want to keep out things that don't belong there. Yeah, yeah. So these right, lungs, so it doesn't recognize these lungs. No, it, it doesn't. It recognized your old lungs. Right, and to, they were fine with them. 
you know? Yeah, which, which is kind of ironic. It's like, oh, yeah, you got these diseased lungs that are killing you, but the immune system's like, ah, oh, well, I recognize them. We know they've those always, guys. They've always been around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we know those guys. They're not very helpful, but <laughs> yeah. we'll let them stay. A couple of slackers, but um, <laughs> no. So right now we're just singing lullabies to my immune system to make sure it stays down. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, because if they were ever to wake up, they'd be like, hey, wait. Who's yeah. that? You know, so they have to keep it damped out, but they know it does damage. Mm-hmm. And they explain it. You're basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. Sure. Um, the good news, I guess you can call it, is from what I understand, talking to the liver doctor a couple of weeks ago, the anti-rejection drugs that they use for the lungs are the same anti-rejection drugs that they use for the liver. So oh. um, I'm only going to be on one set, but... Because the liver is starting over from scratch, yeah, you know, without the damage from the cystic fibrosis and everything else, again, it's going to be like resetting the clock. Yeah. And, and they may be able to handle it for a while, yeah. for a long while, yeah. for opiates. Because like you said, there's a certain regenerative capability for the liver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And the brain seems pretty normal. I mean, well, yeah. depending on your definition of normal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do remember a couple of my couple of my therapists said, "How'd you turn out so normal?" Well, like, well that begs the question. <laughs> what and qualifies as normal? That, that's when you realized that therapists really do have a tough job. <laughs> if if by comparison, I'm an you, actor. You're, you're normal. <laughs> yeah, I'm an actor. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, even as I'm, t- I'm talking to you right now, I'm I I still have a low level of anxiety in my chest about. What's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, sure. So the other thing that's terrifying is, um, so every day I weigh myself, not because I'm eating too much or anything, but as the fluid builds up, my weight goes up. Mm, it creeps up. And it's inevitable. So every day I get on the scale and it's you know another it's pound. Mm-hmm. It's another pound. It's, I'm talking daily. Yeah, you're thinking um, I'm another day closer to having to get this stuff sucked out or... Another day closer to having my organs so permanently damaged that there's nothing I can do about it. Yep. And then. So when you do go in to get this, you know, drained from your chest cavity, Mm -hmm. do you find yourself going in because in your mind, hey, I'm already at the limit with these three liters kind of, you know, based on their weight or what's prompting you to go in, right? Like you could go in today, technically. Well, I could. Nothing stops you from going to the emergency room today and saying, hey, I got, I know I've got three, Wouldn't three I went, liters of, not three liters, but maybe a, a liter of fluid on my. When my I went in on Thursday. Right. First of all, I was very uncomfortable. Okay. So I felt like I was nine months pregnant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not only that, but the pressure was building up inside my body. So, you know, your ribs are designed to protect you from damage coming from the outside. Yeah. But what's happening is when that fluid gets up, it starts pushing my ribs out. out. And that hurts because your ribs are not designed to hold that way. Mm-hmm. So that's painful. Mm-hmm. It's painful. It's like it's trying to, I feel like it's going to break the ribs if right. I'm not careful. And then I have no energy, like no energy. I went to bed at 8.30 last night, and I got up at 8 this morning. That sounds like me, and I, I'm relatively normal other than being fat. <clears throat> but I just, uh, I can tell it sometimes when I go to play with my dog. Like, I, mm-hmm. 
if it's a day that I've been drained, I can chase them around the yard. I can throw the ball, yeah. whatever. If it's a day before I'm going to get drained, I'm just mm-hmm. sitting in a chair throwing the ball for them because I just, I want to play with them. You know, I love my dog, but I just, I just don't have it in me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, like I said, watching that, that scale go up, mm-hmm. no, it's, it's inevitability. Right. You know, it reminds me of uh, Agent Smith on The Matrix. You hear that? Mm. That's the sound of inevitability. Yeah. Now, I've done a good job of ignoring inevitability for my whole life. And, mm-hmm. You know, they, and I know I've covered this before. They, I got diagnosed at the age of two, and they told my parents, take him home, love on him now, because he's not going to make it to school. Right. Like, to elementary school, which is five. So... Um, it's interesting because all the people in that room for that conversation, except for me, are dead. But um, besides death itself, Bob, what are you afraid of regarding uh, passing on? Oh, see, you know, my fear doesn't have to do with death. My fear has to do with incapacitation. Mm. That I still have a brain. I got you. But my body is so handicapped or or you know i have a permanent drain in my side or um a paraplegic or something that that i my brain is trapped inside Mm -hmm. and i understand that there are people out there that are in that very situation and i i can't even imagine what that must be like but that to me incapacitation would be more terrifying than than dying I mean, I don't want to die either. And you would ask me earlier, it's like, well, you know, I'm from New Jersey, so I'm a pessimist. Either there is no heaven, mm-hmm. in which case everything that I am is completely annihilated, or there is a heaven and I'm going to hell. You know, it's like it's the worst. Well, in fairness, you're not an atheist. You're not a you're not a non-believer or an unbeliever. You're a Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think over the years I've called you a fence setter because you said that you're uh, a agnostic, which meant you didn't really know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the answer. So you were just being very honest. That's that's. It seems to me that if there is a God, perhaps he or she or it would respect that more than they would respect maybe my atheism. Because I I I'm I'm stepping in and acting like I am a God. Like I, I'm so smart, I know for a fact there is no God or gods. You're at least saying, look, I'm humble enough to, to say, I don't know. The other, the other thing, and I was talking to a couple of my students. I saw them in church the other day. Oh, wow. They invited me to go to church with them. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a violent household. Okay. In a violent neighborhood with violent teachers and violent random people on the street. And if there's one thing I learned is that authority figures can be capricious and vicious. Mm. They have their own, you know, I had this conversation with my mom, said, yeah, you and dad used to beat me and my brother. We never changed our behavior, but you were just working out your own frustrations. Mm-hmm. And my mom said, yep. Pretty much. I said, good talk, mom. So if all the authority figures you've met in your life are mm-hmm. abusive, physically, emotionally, whatever, why would you surrender yourself to the ultimate Authority figure. Authority figure. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. So in, in in my rationalization, it's like, maybe you should have thrown a couple of nice ones in there for the mix just to, you know. Mm. I mean, I had one good grandma, and she was 
awesome. But I'm guessing she wasn't in your life very long. No, no, she lived to 94. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. She, uh, and everybody loved her. And it was, and, and it's funny because my other grandma was so jealous of her because everybody yeah. liked Rosie, it was her name. But she was amazing. <laughs> and you know what's funny? Now, and we could have this conversation some other time too. You know, as a sick kid, yeah, I was always given more leeway than my brother, who was the normal kid. Sure. And as as a growing up thing, I can only imagine, you know, the stress that it put on him, you know, to be not treated the same as me. Right. Um, and we had this conversation. We were talking about Rosie. And uh, so I always loved pretzels and Coke. Those are my two favorite snacks. Mm -hmm. And my dad always liked ginger ale and potato chips. Well, every Sunday we spent our, our, our days with grandma, mm -hmm. yeah, good grandma. And every week it was always potato chips and ginger ale. And I'd say, grandma, I don't like potato chips and ginger ale. <laughs> and you know what? Next week it'd be potato chips and ginger ale. Cause that's what your father likes. Wow. <laughs> so I was talking to my brother and I was joking around about it. It's like, yeah, she didn't pick me over you. She picked that over both of us. Wow. So it was funny. But she was an amazing, amazing woman. She was super nice. So that's, that's my one person I cling to as being super nice. Yeah, one positive influence. Yeah. Yeah. So what else? What else are you worried about? What else do you fear? Especially as it relates to leaving here, though. Leaving here do you worry, is... Do you, do you fear... Having not done everything, having leaving someone or something behind, or what are you what are you concerned about? It, well, I've tried to do everything I wanted to do. I've traveled to multiple countries. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done different things. I've watched a NASA launch in Florida. I, right. you know, my brother and I went caving in the hills of Pennsylvania and almost died. Been married. You know, been married, divorced. Um, you know, I've done plays. I've been a teacher for a long time. I'm doing podcasts now. Did a bodybuilding competition or two, I, rem I yeah. believe, as well. Back in the day. Back yeah. in the day. Of course, that was all uphill because, you know. Yeah. So I like to think that I've I've tried just about everything. Hell, I was even in a couple of Matlock episodes when they used to film here in North Carolina. <laughs> so I was on TV. Yeah, I think Andy Griffith yelled at you, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. He did. You should tell that story because it is quite funny. <laughs> People who think Andy Griffith, this is the sheriff now from um, from the Mayberry, right? Show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I and I think he actually was born here in North Carolina in yeah. May, Maysville, North Carolina, which looks know. a lot like Mayberry. Uh, tell the story, Bob, about him being in Matlock. So they were filming in Wilmington. That's where they filmed most of the show. And uh, I had been in a couple episodes. And in this one particular episode, I was the waiter for yeah. his table. And I was part of the in-joke there with the ex-girlfriend and all this other stuff. And um, one of the assistant directors told me, when you're done chopping off the soup, come sit over here. Yeah. Right. So I came and sat over there. But I didn't realize that Andy didn't memorize his lines he just had them put up around the room so oh he had cue cards yeah. on the wall so when he got to the section he's like and if we could have if we could have nobody lollygagging around in front of the signs that would be great and i got yelled at and i was like sorry lollygagging and 
That was a, you would have poured the water over his head, except they probably didn't have actual water in the um it probably wasn't actual mm. air. Um, but no, it was just funny that he got yelled at by Andy Griffith. <laughs> That's right. There's my five minutes of fame. Getting yelled at by Mayberry's finest dad and sheriff. What else did it? Oh, I've he done, was the lawyer, by the way, in May, in uh, Matlock. I've done skydiving. Right. Um, yep. You talked about that before. Uh, my brother and I jumped off a bridge in New York State over the Erie Canal. Um, I'm guessing that wasn't perfectly legal. No. Oh, okay. And what was your point? It was part of a bachelor party. He was getting married, and we thought, well, what the heck? We'll just jump off a bridge. We got a bunch of people that we grew up with, and we jumped off. And Good thing um, back in those days you didn't have the camera phones, or the phone for that matter, nothing to record that, that with. No, no. I mean, I have pictures. We those use things those. only. Oh, you had disposable cameras? Yeah, those oh, wow. disposable cameras. I was so. going to say, man, those things only live on in our imaginations. But uh, I've got some pictures I can show you. It was it was about a 30-foot drop. Wow. It was kind of scary. Although nothing is as scary as jumping out of a plane. Yeah. Um, went horseback riding. I mean, a lot of people did these things. Went to Yellowstone. I, um, I don't know. I, I've done pretty much. Don't get me wrong. I, my next goal is to live overseas. That's what my next well, yeah, you know, that's, I, that's what I was hoping you'd get to. I didn't know if you wanted to share that or not, but I'm, I figured before we wrap up today, you could you could maybe talk about that. This is this has been for a long time a dream your, of mine, your dream and your, and and relatively recently, what after you you survived the double lung transplant, you started thinking about it and really considering it more and more as a as a actual as an actuality as a possibility. Well, when post retirement, I, when I was in in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, my girlfriend went her freshman year, and she went to school in um, Heidelberg. Mm-hmm. And I went to go visit her, and on, that was a nightmare. But the country was awesome. Now, this is you, Heidelberg, Germany. Yeah. Okay. Uh, West Germany. That tells you how long ago that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just got, I mean, the people were nice, the food, the culture, the history, you know. So once I got my job, um, teaching college every year, you know, when I was married and then when I started dating, um, every year I'd pack up all my stuff, pick a different country and just go, mm-hmm. you know, stay in little B and B's and little hostels and stuff like that and walk around. And I mean, just, I just, just do what the uh, natives did. Yeah. I, I love it. Immerse. And I tried a couple of times to go to the state department to get a job. Um, it didn't work out, but, um, now that, um, hopefully going to retire in May, I can, I, I would like to move overseas and then just, you know, instead of flying over, now I that's can just, next year, Bob, May of next year, you're saying. Yeah. I'm supposed to retire. Oh. And then, uh, you know, just take a train, you know, want to take a train to Heidelberg. You want to take a train mm-hmm. to, you know, Rome or Milan, or you could, you know, take the overnight train. Boof. So make, so make the move post-retirement. Yep. That's, Possibly that's live somewhere, goal. somewhere in Europe, maybe Ireland, somewhere outside of Ireland. You said, "Yep." And then you can hop on a train and go anywhere. Go anywhere. That's yeah. my that's my dream job, my dream vacation yeah. or retirement. That's what I want to do. Mm. So I still have plans. I would like to do that. Yeah, you're not resigned to to dying yet. No, I don't want to. And I, 
And you plan to continue fighting like hell? Yeah, I don't know any other way. Yeah. Well, that's 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 the good thing, I guess. Or bad. If you're tired, you could just go home, climb under the sheets, and drown in this freaking abdominal fluid. Well, I, I remember when I was 21, I got super, super sick, and I lost a ton of weight. Mm -hmm. I mean, I weigh 180, 185 now, depending right. on the day. But... um. I weighed 100 pounds and three quarters. Mm. And, you know, the doctors were telling me there's nothing we could do. Da, 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 and I, I accepted it. And then finally I decided to not accept it. And I went to my, I think I told you the story. Mm, yeah. I went to my pediatrician. Yep. And he put me in the hospital and fixed me up. And I started. Yeah, your childhood better. pediatrician, I think you yeah. said. Yep. Yeah. He's like, yeah, let's try some stuff out. Yep. And he uh, gave me some ideas, and he checked me into the hospital, and boom. Next thing you know, a couple weeks later, I was getting better. So I know you don't know what's going to happen. Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, but but something's going to happen tomorrow. You're going to get up, I'm assuming, 4 or 5 in the morning. Yep. You're driving yourself up to Duke. Camry's coming okay. with me. A friend of yours is going to come with you. Yeah. You're going to meet with a physician or two. And we're gonna meet with the transplant department. I'm also meeting with the liver doctors, and we're all gonna have a big confab and see what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they say, "Look, man, uh, we can do this if you want to go forward. We uh, just need your commitment, your word that um, you understand this is gonna be hell again." Yeah. Well, I I think that's one of the things that's in my benefit. I've done a transplant. That's true. And I prove. Yeah. That, that you can I can do, it. do. That you're strong enough, that you'll fight like hell, that you'll do all the things they ask you to do, with yeah. the, maybe the exception of getting rid of your dog. Well, that one of the things was before they would let me leave the hospital, I had to be able to walk a mile. Yep. But by the time I left, I was walking two miles. I already made right. up my mind I was going to do double. And outdo what they asked you to do. Yep. Probably in half the time. Double what they wanted. Well, and the then, same with going back to work, right? They told you you could... Go I back a have, year later, whatever. Yeah, they told me I could have another semester. And you went like, back like what? A week I'll, after you got out? No, it wasn't that. It, <laughs> it was fast, though. Um, Part of that might have been he ran out of FMLA, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I already told him this time around, if he has to go for another transplant, uh, we're going to try to get him some sick leave as well. I think there is a uh, leave-sharing policy at the state of North Carolina. So anyone within earshot of my voice right now, another thing you can do is, you know, consider giving a couple of days or a week or two of your sick leave. If you're like me, you've got plenty of it saved up. I've been fortunate enough to save over a thousand hours of sick leave in my 25 years working with the state. So I'll be the first one to sign up to give Bob some leave if and when he needs it. So anyone within earshot of me who works for the state of North Carolina, but more specifically that works where Bob works, consider that in the future. Um, I might be hitting you up. Well, even, even, other places in North Carolina, find yeah. out if there's somebody in your department that might need some time off or contemplating an operation yeah, or, or something like that. Especially. It, and it, it doesn't cost you anything. No, you'll never miss it. It will make a big deal to the person that you help out. So yeah. it doesn't have to be me. Yeah, because just, there's no real paid leave, ladies and gentlemen. Like, even if you work for a state institution like North Carolina, there's no paid leave. I mean, sometimes people misinterpret FMLA as, oh, you get this. Um, time off from work and then the state tax dollars just pay you to be off. No, 
that comes out of our sick leave that we've accumulated as a benefit for working. And then when you run out of sick leave, then that's it, right? They yeah. they allow you to stay out and recover but you without firing you, but you don't get paid. And I'm I'm assuming that probably happened to you the first time around. Yeah. yeah. He uh he was out so long, again, a month or two that his his leave ran out. And um Well remember because I had to go up in November, December. January, February, March. Oh yeah, that's right. April, so it wasn't May. just the it wasn't Seven just months yeah it wasn't just out. the months that you're out after the transplant. It was the months you had to be out to prep, and yep. so and hopefully the prep for something like this wouldn't be quite as laborious. But we again we just don't know. Yeah. yeah. Have you uh, have you got a script in your head about how it's going to go tomorrow? Have you thought about what you're going to say first? Are you going to be serious? You're going to joke around? Like what? Uh, I'm not going to joke yeah, around. Yeah. I got to take it serious. Yeah. What are you going to say? You think? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of the stuff I'm going to say is what we said that, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a fighter, yep. which they know mm -hmm. I've exceeded their expectations as far as working hard. Yeah. Um, you know, you've this... stayed, you've stayed abstinent of any kind of drugs or oh, alcohol or oh, anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Obviously that was no problem. Yeah. Um, well, you know me, I yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't really even beforehand. I didn't right, really drink. Right. So yeah, and you can it's... and you can maintain a, a very scrupulous diet. I mean, this guy's always yeah. been a chicken and rice kind of guy. No, yep. no fat, no sugars, no carbs. I mean, the occasional bag of chips probably, but nothing, nothing too obsessive. Oh, my dad got the chips. I like the pretzels. Yeah, that's right, pretzels. Um, what else? Also. I think a big argument in my favor is it's the CF and it's the, the drugs, the prescribed drugs that damn sure. So this is not, you know, I went on a bender. Yeah, what weekend. a lifestyle choice yeah. you made to. So to, this is not self-inflicted. It's not self-inflicted. I got you. So I think that helps. Also, the other thing that's going to make a difference is my, my um, blood type. Hmm. You know, if they don't have any of my blood type, they don't have any of my blood type. So yeah, that's a good point. You know, like there's nothing you can do about it. No, unless you know. But again, it is it is a nice reminder of how important it is to consider uh, being a, a or donor. Doing it, mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what about letters of rec? I think I asked you that before. I asked you if you you'd taken any character letters or letters of rec to try to sway the the powers that be to give you the lungs in the first place. And you said, no, 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 I didn't have to do that. Um, they had interviewed your brother maybe in Camry. Yes, they did. But they I'm did wondering, both. you know. For, for the audience members listening who know you, um, we know a lot of what you're about, a lot of, you know, the kind of person you are, your heart, how compassionate you are, how selfless you have been throughout your life. Um, is there room for, or could we, you know, well, that's one write of the a letter or an email? I, I mean, is there something we could do? That's one of the questions I can ask tomorrow, hmm. if that would help sway anybody. Yeah, you know. Would 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 hearing from ten thousand of your former students uh, maybe sway the jury a little bit in terms of how how serious? Just thinking of how big a stack of paper that is. Well, I mean, you know, you've been teaching longer than I have, and I figured what, five years. years ago. I figured five years ago, I probably have taught, gosh, fifteen twenty thousand students. So yeah, you've got know. me. You've been doing this over thirty years. Yeah. So I, I imagine you're you're pushing forty thousand students. Golly, I, yeah. I, I see them all the time. Sure, everywhere. No matter where I go, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, Mr. Brennan. my teacher. Yeah, well, I was? Okay. Yeah. I don't Hell, some of them, Some of them are teaching right alongside us now. Well, yeah, some of cool. them, I'm having their kids. 
Well, you're not having their kids. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm <laughs> You've saying. got their kids in your classroom. Yeah, yeah. Like Shay. Yeah. You know, we knew her back in the early twenty, early two thousands, and You've got her, her kids son came to my class. Yeah. So it's like it's really kind of a weird situation. It's like, wow, I remember your mom being here. You yeah. know. Yeah. Um. Well, that not only speaks to you, but that speaks to the continuity um, of the place within which you, you work as well. Yeah. And a lot of people there, and I guess across most of that campus, there still are a lot of people that, there's, that there's, were there. There's some good quality people there. Yeah. So, but, yeah, um, I think state employees get a bad rap sometimes. They're stereotyped as being maybe a little bit whiny and a little bit lazy, but... Man, I tell you what, I'll put, I'll put my colleagues of the last 25 years up against anyone. I mean, in terms of work ethic, in terms of being intellectually shrewd and, and being compassionate. Well, you, you know, know. Public servants, that's what we are. You've talked to our students who've gone on to big universities. Sure. And, and they said one of the things they liked when they were in our class, mm. because the classes are smaller, there was more attention. They could ask questions. They didn't feel like a number. Yeah, they and they didn't feel intimidated. They felt like they could just ask us questions and get the answers that yeah. they're paying for, you yeah. know, as as a student. Yeah. So that's a good point. But uh, yeah, we've helped out students before, with like fundraising and you know, Cape Fear Foundation and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but well, yeah, man. so all my all my answers hopefully are coming tomorrow. Okay, and you'll come back hopefully uh, within the next couple of days and yeah. uh, record something else, and we can have something out within a week or so. Yep, that's of, the goal of this podcast. Well, man, we appreciate you coming in. Any final words for the audience? Don't fear the reaper. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. Again, Bob, thanks for coming in, man. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. All right. Don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain.